This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm super excited. Um, you all know by now that I'm very interested in the workings of influence, the mind, people, how they react to others, and how we can learn from other people. And this can be both good, but it can also be bad. And I think it's really important to cover both sides of these. So today, I'm really fortunate enough to have on an FBI forensic analyst, um, a profiler, and most intriguingly, a forensic linguist, James R. Fitzgerald. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing fine, Eric. Thanks for having me on your show. Hey, I'm super excited to have you here. You've got such a storied career, and I really like your pattern. Um, from what I understand, you started out all the way from being a store detective, which I'm not going to say is like a, a security guard plus. I, I don't know how you describe it, but hopefully you will. And all the way through being a beat cop to being a detective to being FBI and on and on. And you've written all this out in um, three books with a fourth one coming. Is that correct? That's correct. And I decided to give them one uh, title. I've always, uh, as a young boy, I fell in love with Jules Verne and a few of his books, but certainly including uh, A Journey to the Center of the Earth. And um, there was a 1969 song by the Amboy Dukes called uh, A Journey to the Center of the Mind. No, I'm sorry. No, no here's the linguist in me. No uh, <laughs> uh, indefinite article on the front. So my, my title of my books has the only, it's a distinct and unique title in that regard, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, all three of them soon to be four. But each one has a subtitle. The first book is uh, uh, The Coming of Age Years. It's me growing up in Philadelphia, and, and a lot of anecdotes and crazy things happened to me during the 60s and 70s. Book two is simply The Police Officer Years. That's my 11 years as a uh, police officer in Ben Salem Township, Pennsylvania. That's the northern suburb of, uh, of Philly, and a lot of things that you know obviously happened there from rookie patrol officer to detective sergeant and politics and everything that happened in between. And the third book was going to be my whole FBI career. But as I started writing it, I said, wow, a lot of stuff happened in the first 10 years. So I decided to end it with a longish chapter on the Unabom case. And I timed that uh, publication, coincidentally or not, with the <laughs> release of the miniseries on the Discovery Channel back in August of 2017, Manhunt Unabomber. And they've sort of been companion pieces ever since. Now, of course, the show is on Netflix all around the world, and I can tell when I'm getting emails from uh, England, then next from Germany, then next from, uh, uh, let me see, uh, Switzerland, then it moves to South Africa, then it moves to Australia. <laughs> so Netflix kind of really, they don't, it doesn't just go on Netflix all around the world at once, I've learned. Uh, it happens like maybe once a month, I'll release it to a new country, and I get a whole new set of fans there. So long-winded uh, answer to your question, Eric. I sometimes do that, but uh, I wanted to kind of give sort of a, an overall view of why I decided to write these books. My sure. kids, other friends, hey, you told this story before. It's really kind of interesting. I never expect an ending like that. And, uh, and they said, put it on paper. So for about five years, I sat down and wrote, I forget how many thousand words now total, but, <laughs> uh, but a lot of them. And, uh, and the books are doing well. And uh, especially with the third book came out, people are going back down buying one and two. And it's, it's a fun thing to have uh, people ask about, especially young people looking to get themselves started in a career somewhere and not sure what they want to do. And that was kind of the purpose behind book one and certainly book two and book three back that up. Okay, a couple of uh, quick questions on that. Um, 
Number one, is book four actually finished? Book four, I've started it, and it'll probably be out at this point in uh, early 2020. So sorry, uh, it's okay. still a little bit of a wait for that. <laughs> but the, the miniseries really threw me off my game a little bit in a good way. Uh, like I said, I wrote three books in five years, virtually nonstop, from Italy to other countries to other parts of the U.S. Uh, and um, I just said, I'm, I'm, I need about a year, a year and a half off from actual writing. I still have a business. I have a company, James R. Fitzgerald Associates, LLC. And I still do work with clients in terms of usually it has to do with some sort of an anonymous letter that came into their company or their client is getting some, you know, reading some blog sites on some uh, you know, a web page somewhere, and they want to know who wrote this. So I do still employ my forensic linguistic skill set in the private sector. I am working with some uh, police agencies and prosecutors' offices actually around the world on cases, and I just do enough of that. I'm giving some talks now around the country and around the world, heading to Denmark in December. So, uh, so the writing took a little bit of a backseat. I figured I deserve a break after five years of pretty much straight writing. And uh, but I'm going to get back into it, and I have started it already, and I'm hoping by early 2020, um, book four will be out, which will complete my FBI career and actually my first 10 years in retirement, covering you know Hollywood and different things like that. Right now, um, as a podcaster, I'm sure you know that I enjoy audio, and I'm a bit of an evangelist. How about an audio book? Have you looked into that? Yes, I have. I've talked to my publisher about that. The question is, do I read it? Does someone else read it? Um, do I kind of combine all three books? So there's there's some talk about that. And I've listened to audiobooks in the past, and I've thoroughly enjoyed them. So that is, uh, Eric, something on the horizon. They're not out yet, but let's uh, let's see if that can come out. You're not the first podcast person or media person to ask me that question. So I am... I am contemplating it, and we'll see when, in fact, it, uh, it comes to fruition. Okay. You may want to write this down, too. ACX, and you can look that up. Um, it's Audiobook Connection Exchange, and it is an alternative. If you, let's say, don't wish to go through the publisher, you wish to do it on your own, you can work out with a narrator through royalty splits or straight fee to get published. Um, one of my previous guests, Andrew Werlin, is a fantastic narrator. He does a lot with ACX. I, I've already written it down. Thank you for that, and I will look into it. All right. Now, um, let's start out with the uh, baseline of your career. Now, I understand that when you were a little kid, you were really influenced by Lindbergh. Do you want to go into that a little? Yeah, uh, I was. Uh, I mean, growing up in the uh, as a real little kid in the 50s, but certainly coming of age in the 60s and 70s, um, uh, and having been born to parents a little bit late in life, my dad was 50 and my mom was 40 when I was born. And I have three older sisters, um, you know, 16, 14 and 12 years older than me. And uh, all of a sudden, little Jimmy comes along. Surprise, surprise. Um, but uh, it was good for them and certainly great for me. But I would hear them talk as I get older. And, you know, that generation, you know, uh, you know, the heroes those people had, you know, who grew up through the early part of the 20th century were pretty much genuine heroes. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, you know, Winston Churchill, uh, you know, perhaps FDR, I mean, depending on your politics, whatever, but, but certainly, you know, away from war and politics and all that stuff was young Charles Lindbergh, the first person to fly solo 
across the Atlantic Ocean, and that was the biggest story of the time in, I think, 1928, 29. And uh, no one had done it before he did it. So um, he's he's a good-looking guy. He marries, you know, a beautiful, wealthy woman. They move only about uh, 10 miles away from where I was living at the time, hmm. uh, as the crow flies anyway, in uh, Hopewell, New Jersey, with a, you know, a mansion on, on, you know, a few acres of property. Next thing you know, headlines, their baby, uh, I think less than a year old, was kidnapped. And uh, it became the story of the century and the trial, eventual trial of the century. And I won't go into all of it now, but sure. they were, they were, you know, uh, the baby was kidnapped and, and, and ransom notes are left at the scene. Other ones come through the mail or to other people and Charles is paying money. He's talking to the FBI wasn't even in charge of this case because FBI did not have jurisdiction over kidnappings back then. It was not a federal crime, believe it or not, in the late 20s. Jagger Hoover changed that within a few years. But the New Jersey State Police really ran with this, and they eventually identified someone named um, uh, Bruno Hoffman, and he was arrested and eventually tried, convicted, and uh, went to jail. So my parents talked, and, and, uh, and he was executed, I should say, most importantly. Uh, and a uh, fascinating case. My parents always talked about it as uh, when I was a kid, and and finally, I went to the library. I used to go to the library every week to get books out. <clears throat> the local Alney branch of the Philadelphia Library. I could walk there, take my bike sometimes, and I would usually get kitty books, you know, young books uh, in that little section there. And I finally went downstairs once and looked for a book called Kidnap. Uh, and it's not the Robert Louis Stevenson book. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 a book about the Lindbergh kidnapping. And this was my first adult book I ever read. I was no more than ten years old. And it you know, may have taken me a little bit longer than some of my kitty books. But my parents were impressed that I was reading this book, and and I would ask them some questions, and they would even ask me, "Well, if you look that up, you know, you'll see exactly what happened." And um, and it just fascinated me. The part, the the I'm not sure that they've even used the word forensics in that book to describe how the crime scene was analyzed. The latter left at the scene. They brought an expert in who broke down the exact type of wood, you know, that the ladder, the handmade ladder. Uh, was uh, 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 comprised of, and and eventually, when Bruno Hoppen was identified, they went into his attic, and the same expert could scientifically compare the wood from the ladder to the uh, to the wood there. There was linguistics involved because there were notes. They met somebody uh, in a cemetery, and they heard a German accent, and they put that together. So it's a fascinating book to anybody listening to your show today, Eric. I mean, it's a 1962 book simply called Kidnap. And it's just it's it, it's an early um, it's a throwback investigation, if you will, of the biggest case of the century. Certainly, I think through most of it, people years later would say, "Oh, O.J. Simpson murder, uh, you know, is the biggest case of the century." But I think uh, from a real sort of uh, forensic perspective and, and and real crime perspective, uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping was probably the crime of the 20th century, and it influenced me as a young boy about. Um, a, a giant puzzle of real life people and sometimes real dead people and how uh, investigators, police, detectives, you know, agents, whatever you want to call them, can come into a scene knowing almost nothing but start piecing together these elaborate and, and amorphous um, puzzle pieces and um, some that aren't even, you know, existent at the crime scene at the time, meaning subsequent letters that come in, subsequent sightings in a kidnap, kidnap type case. And all of a sudden, um, they, they, they built their case enough to where they had 
grounds for a search warrant, grounds for a uh, arrest warrant, and of course a trial and conviction, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And as, I, as a young boy, uh, that's something that I just said, boy, I, I really think I'd love to do that someday. And the psychology behind this, and it got me interested in psychology. And <clears throat> before long, I'm in college. Here's this brand new major being offered, uh, law enforcement and corrections, they called it then, hmm. which combined everything I was interested in as a kid. And that was my major. And um, I've been following through in that path uh, ever since. But uh, I don't want to make it sound callous, you know, thanks uh, to the kid Lindbergh kidnapping. We all wish that never happened. But that was a case that just opened my eyes up, you know, 40 years after it happened, uh, uh, at least 30 years after it happened. I'm reading about it. And uh, it just fascinated me. And boy, could I ever work a case something like that someday? And Unibom was a little bit different, but actually some of the same methodologies and forensic type analysis was employed. And, and here I was, uh, you know, one of the major uh, factors in, in fact, uh, resolving that matter, too. That brings up a good question. Both, obviously, are hugely well-known or notorious. Um, the Lindbergh kidnapping and Unabomber you know, going to both ends. What do you think determines this case is going to be the crime of the century and then some other case which may have even more moving parts more scary elements and things like that is virtually obscure uh two things probably um uh, no doubt uh equally important um who is the victim mm -hmm. uh or who are the victims and um media interest uh, throw in longevity of crime, uh, meaning does, does it happen just once? Does it happen over a year, over 17 years, like with Unabom? Uh, and, um, you know, how, um, how tragic, if you will, uh, how, how demonic does the perpetrator seem to be in carrying out these crimes and, and what's the rationale behind them? So I started with sort of two factors. You can kind of maybe branch those off and do a few sub factors in there, but basically, yeah, who are your victims and, uh, what's the media interest? And, uh, you know, there are, and we, we would, uh, in, in the profiling unit back in the day, we would, uh, we would, you know, grimace at each other and say, you know, you know, how many little, you know, cute little, you know, African-American girls are being killed in the inner city somewhere. Um, you know, just like maybe a certain cute little blonde girl, uh, white girl was killed, you know, in some other suburb somewhere or some rural area. And why does the latter case get all the headlines and the pure poor little girl or maybe even multiple girls in, you know, inner city Detroit or Chicago, it doesn't get anything more than maybe a, you know, a B1 uh, page on uh, in, in the inside of the newspaper. So uh, uh, all those factors kick in, Eric, and I mean, probably even some others, but there's a rubbernecking effect and, you know, uh, old men or old women being killed. Yeah, I'll get some news coverage, mm -hmm. uh, but make it an attractive, you know, younger woman, uh, probably white, uh, or make it a baby of some sort uh, uh, who is, uh, uh, you know, the heir to some uh, notoriety, uh, be it positive or negative. That's going to get the coverage, and that's what the media focuses on. And, uh, you know, it's lopsided to some degrees. But I will tell you this, when law enforcement gets involved, because I've worked the cases that are really big with all kinds of tentacles attached to um, media outlets and, and uh, magazines and notoriety and, yes, even 
podcast, um, but I will work <laughs> those cases with the same diligence as I will the poor, you know, um, you know, uh, Hispanic kid from the inner city who goes missing and then his body is found, you know, a week later or something like that. Certainly, I will put as much effort in. What we may not have, though, is the overall um, the overall machine, if you will, behind it, where a, a giant task force is set up of you know dozens and dozens of people. Because the lower the working bees really have uh, very little say in that particular factor. But uh, but uh, I, I know one one us worker bees at whatever level, as a profiler, as a street investigator, as a uniform cop, you know, we'll still want to do our best, and that's been my experience to bring this case uh, to an end, to find out who the perpetrator is, why, stop him before he does it again. But there are other factors that kick in in terms of uh, why one case gets more coverage than the other, gets more personnel assigned to it, a higher budget, and it has to do with some of the demographic and basically media-involved reasons that I've already mentioned. You mentioned rubbernecking effect. I think that's especially appropriate. Would you agree that it's natural that all of us kind of have a lurid fascination to what is perceived as evil, going back to stories about vampires even? Oh, and probably beyond that with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And, uh, uh, sure, even in, uh, from a biblical sense, we do. Um, part of that, I think, is uh, a defense mechanism. We want to know, uh, We first of all, are very grateful, whatever the story is, whatever the tragic accident is, homicide, you know, attempted murder, whatever. We're so glad it's not us or and or one of our loved ones. But there's a part of us that also wants to find out more and figure out, well, all right, it wasn't me or my loved ones this time. Is there a way I can make sure this doesn't happen to me again? Uh, or it doesn't happen to me in any way, shape or form again, like it happened with these other uh, victims. So, yeah, I think there is a natural interest in that. Uh, and this is no secret, probably. Um, and your listeners may be aware of this, but um, the highest uh, demographic or audience for most of these TV shows uh, about, uh, you know, well, about true crime. They're certainly fictionalized versions of them. Women. And certainly the movies is uh, middle aged women. Uh, and mostly white women, and uh, is it? Uh, and there's you know psychologists and sociologists that have studied this. And I go now uh, two years. I'm going already. I'll be going again in New Orleans in June to an event called CrimeCon, mm. and it's a true crime conference. Uh, and it had a thousand people in Indianapolis in '17. We had about 3,500 in Nashville back in uh, May, and they already have 5,000 tickets sold for New Orleans in uh, June of next year. And it's a true crime conference over three days. And I'm there with my, uh, my, my various colleagues. Uh, we give talks, we put presentations on and we always make sure that, Hey, this is about the victims. This is how we're going to help you not become victims yourself. But the audience, Eric is, um, 85% middle-aged women. Many of them bring their daughters with them. I think you have to be 18 to get in. So that's the audience that, you know, I work for criminal minds, a technical advisor, my good friend, uh, uh, work there as a, as a, as one of the head writers and, uh, they know their audience is, um, is, uh, is, is mostly women. And that's why if you watch the show about, you know, at least every other episode approximately, uh, it has an attractive younger woman as the victim or a series of these younger women as victims, usually white. And, um, and they get, uh, they get the highest ratings. That's, I wouldn't call it racism or sexism. It's just, 
the, the, these shows are written to support the largest audience out there and and pick your psychological or behaviorally oriented reason why the uh, women of certain ages like these shows um, and uh, and these shows will then write to them. That's that's what they do. So rubbernecking is part of it. Same like driving down the highway and there's the accident across the street and your your traffic's not impeded at all on your side, but everybody slows down because, boy, that could have been me. What did I do wrong? Uh, or what did he do wrong? I make sure I don't do wrong down the line. And, um, and it, it's, and part of it just builds into it's, 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 it's survivalism too. And it goes back into our, probably into our DNA from the earliest uh, days of trying to get through uh, living in a, the cruel world in which we do. Do you ever worry that um, you've been to actual crime scenes? You deal with the actual visceral elements, the smell, the conditions, things like that. Whereas somebody such as myself or anyone else who's watching it on television or reading a book, I feel like it's almost sanitized for us. And we may not be drawing the full impact and that could be causing it to be romanticized. Like Silence of the Lambs has been considered a romance movie. Not a rom-com, I hope. Not a romantic comedy. <laughs> well, he's a, um, he said some some lines that were very dark humor, <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, and um, I, I know where you're going with this. And um, uh, TV and, and, and movies and entertainment, there is just a, a fine line there and how it's presented. And, of course, over the years, it was more uh, and back in the early days of true crime. And uh, I remember watching the movie uh, in cold blood based on uh, mm -hmm. Truman Capote's uh, nonfiction book, of course. And it, you know, uh, it Great isn't book. until the very end. You're not even sure you're going to see the crime, but they eventually do. And then even back in, I think the movies from the late sixties at some point, but uh, the, the violence is it's a black and white movie and it's not all that uh, pronounced on screen, but you certainly get a, the, the psychological uh, visceral feel of of knowing what's happening to the to the cutter family as the two criminals are going through the house and basically taking them out now that changed over the years sometimes it's uh you know it's these horror movies or these graphic uh representations on screen of, of you know some kind of a slasher uh, a movie that never did anything for me at all i refuse to watch them show me a a good psychological thriller and yeah, maybe there are people dying in it, uh, and maybe they're even being mutilated. But I don't, I don't deceive that part because yeah, I have seen that in real life, not as it's happening, but in, in some cases only minutes, if not hours, after it did. Gunshot wounds, knife wounds, and things done to bodies that are very unpleasant. And certainly years later, as a profiler, I looked at videotapes of crime scenes and 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 uh, and still pictures and uh, autopsies, and it's. Yeah, and they're and they're they're still difficult after all these years. We're all human beings with uh, with feelings. Most of us have families of some sort, either your own kids or nieces, nephews, neighbor kids, whatever. And and you see someone um, violated. We'll just leave it at that for your audience. In the way that some people have been, uh, it 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 is very tough, and you have to really put that early on in my career. I, I try to describe this in my my books. Uh, you have to really build a, a wall and like a light switch inside your brain that as soon as you get in that car and you're on your way home, you have to find a spot where 
you switch off what you experience for those eight, 10, you know, 15 hours of the day before. And when you're walking your door with your kids, your family, your wife, your husband, you know, cat, dog, whatever, um, the other Jim or the other Eric, you know, walks in the door and you leave that stuff behind. It's always in there, you know, uh, floating through the, you know, the various recesses of your brain. Sometimes you do go to bed at night and think about not just the crime scene, but who is the person that would have perpetrated and created this particular crime scene. And then you try to work the case. And I probably fall asleep a few times thinking, you know, maybe it's this kind of guy who has this kind of a background and woke up and took some notes on the, on the nightstand next to me then went back to sleep. But I try to put it out of my brain when I get home. Uh, and, um, and now, you know, 11 years into retirement, I'm not looking as much at crime scene pictures at all anymore, quite frankly. I'm certainly not going to crime scenes. Now it's more written communications as a forensic linguist I'm, I'm going to. But people can be very creative with their words, too, and, um, and put some uh, very scary and ominous sort of uh, wording onto a blog posting or an email or even an old school letter they, they send to someone. And, uh, and that can certainly make you think twice, too, but it also tells me, as that profiler and linguist, more about my, uh, my, uh, my, the author here and whether he or she will ever carry out what's being uh, suggested in this, uh, written communication. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of, um, it's, I learned in my earliest days of law enforcement that one really does have to delineate the job from the home. And as a Sergeant, I would stand in front of my men and women at roll call and, and kind of remind them that, you know, after reading the stolen car list and, and who's wanted for what, and, uh, and uh, you know, watch out. The burglar alarm is out at this facility uh, tonight. But I'd say, hey, you know, make sure when you go home, you, you know, you turn on MTV or you, or you read, a, you, know, uh, you know, the comics in the newspaper or the sports page. Don't make this your entire life because it'll screw you up. And even if you're not in law enforcement and your entire life is, is just watching true crime TV shows or even the fictionalized versions, sure. um, it's going to catch up with you after a while. So you essentially compartmentalized. Now, did you ever seek any kind of therapy or anything to kind of help with that? Or would you recommend that to um, agents and police? Um, I never did. Um, I would talk things out with senior officers or agents. Uh, if, if you read my book, too, there was a kind of the middle section of it. I, there was a bad political environment in my police department for two years in the mid eighties. And, uh, and, uh, there were some legal actions being considered and my lawyer strongly suggested I go and see a police psychologist, but it really wasn't about crime scenes. It really wasn't about, uh, you know, the victimization of some people that, that those things bothered me. Those things I took very seriously, but, uh, I'll use your word. I, I could compartmentalize those, uh, type things very well. It was more being screwed with and uh, messed with on a daily basis in sort of a political level. And uh, uh, so besides all the gunplay and the, and the car chases and, and arrest uh, for rape and murder and everything in my second book, there is a section of it to, uh, to how to deal like a bad political situation. So the only time I had to go see a shrink was that. And really my lawyer recommended it because we were considering legal action. And, uh, and he was helpful. And he walked me through some things and I would have no problem with a current day law enforcement officer at any level, you know, <laughs> store detective 
to uh, you know to the top uh, you know FBI agent somewhere who just felt that uh, <clears throat> you know a certain crime, certain crime scenes were were catching up with him or her, and if they could have to talk to a professional. Hopefully they can find the right one who has some experience with that, maybe PTSD, something like that, uh, maybe, you know, counseled some military folks. And uh, I think that could be very helpful. And I would certainly encourage that if the person ever felt that their everyday life was catching up to them in that regard. Well, now, I believe in um, book two, I, I haven't gotten to the books yet, but I believe in book two, you talked about um, one of your most proud i guess arrests which i really enjoyed the story and i'm hoping you can share now and it's about a stop that you had made where one car was tailing another oh wow yeah um yeah looking back in my life if people ask me what was your best arrest or whatever and of course people know about unibom and dc sniper and and uh and even anthrax i was indirectly involved in the eventual arrest of that uh, but yeah as a uh, young um well, I probably had about four years one time. I just came out of plain co- clothes. I was two years as a plain clothes uh, officer, making a lot of uh, arrests there with long hair and you know denim jacket and you know half a beard and making drug buys. I would sit up in a, uh, um, a billboard overlooking a uh, Amtrak train station. And did you have the porn stash? Uh, did not have a porn stash. Um, okay. <laughs> but, but but gee, thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> Uh, I just let my yeah, I let my beard grow a few days at a time just to look kind of grimy, uh, but no, I never never did stash very well. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, so but then I come back in the uniform and within about a month I'm just sitting in an intersection. I'm going to grad school at the time. I really wanted to pull over. It was kind of a quiet night. I answered my calls. I wanted to actually study. Uh, I think I was doing statistics that that semester. I said, oh, I need like you know a half hour here. I'll sit at this intersection anyway. Two cars go flying through a red light, and I said, "Whoa, that's weird. They got to be following each other." And all I can do is stop one car, and they both do. One does the van does a U-turn and just keeps going in the opposite direction. I pull this car over, and um, this guy is really funky. No tag on the back of the car. There's something in the windshield. The car is full of junk. He's being really antsy, and um, and it's important. What I'm about to say is that. Just like with every car stop, which is the most dangerous thing a police officer does on a daily basis, I did everything right. I shined my spotlight into his outside mirror, which serves to kind of blind him. I stood behind him to a certain degree. He had to look up over his left-hand shoulder, and I had my, I'm had i a lefty, so my hand is always near my gun. I didn't actually have it on him, but he's by himself. He's a, I can tell he's a, you know, a badass kind of dude, big arms, tats. Um, the car is really messy. And there's a list on his windshield that I didn't really pick up on at first of a bunch of addresses. I'm talking to him. He has no license, no registration. He can't explain what he's doing, making some kind of delivery somewhere. And so that's kind of weird. Um, I just happened to glance at the list with my flashlight. I'm keeping an eye on him, too, because I'm exposing myself a bit to him. <clears throat> and as I've written in the book, this may be the first time I ever used forensic linguistics to, to solve a case. And that's very loosely translated, as, I'll, as you'll hear here. Mm-hmm. Here's a list on the yellow legal pad, literally about 25 addresses. And I scan them one line at a time in about five seconds. And they all seem innocuous. They mean nothing to me, except one happens to be a street in Ben Salem, the town where I'm working. And I said, oh, I recognize that uh, address and street. Interesting. But I keep going. I said, all right, sit here. I'm going to go back and check some things out. 
So I go back to my patrol car. I run the guy's name that he gave me, date of birth. Nothing comes back. The car, I, I was going to go back, get the VIN off the car. And all of a sudden, um, and any law enforcement officers listening will know, all of a sudden you hear over the radio, beep, beep, beep. That means a major crime just went down. It's like, you know, uh, all cars get ready. We're about to give you some information. So I, you know, I, I'm still keeping my eye on the guy ahead of me. And next thing you know, there's just been a, a house invasion in in uh, the Trevos section of Ben Salem. Um, people tied up, beaten, robbery. Oh. Five suspects got away in a van and a white car. And um, um, they had shotguns and, and, and weapons with them. And the address is I mean, you know, 1234 Gumball Street, we'll say. <laughs> and it all of a sudden it hit me on that list of 25 addresses right in the middle, 1234 Gumball Street. It's actually a different street, but just for right, our purposes. Right. And I said, this is too much of a coincidence. This guy is too shaky. There was a van in front of him. They described the van, another car. Uh, I quickly called for backup and, uh, and lo and behold, brought him out and uh, got him down on his knees. He had makeup, not makeup, but he had a hair color, hair dye, uh, in his head, trying to make himself look different. The bottom line was this guy with his buddies used that list to uh, trick their way into a house of another person. And there, the guy's parents were there. And I think like a teenager or something, they tied them all up, beat them and robbed them and took money from them. And eventually we got the people out of the van in another town about 20 miles away. Um, my guy never confessed until two years later. He called us up. We went to prison to interview him. He said, I want to give everybody up. I can't take prison anymore. The DA, the assistant district attorney I'm with, walks out of the office. And I'll end the story here. But I appreciate you asking it, Eric. But the, yeah. the, uh, the, uh, the inmate in his orange jumpsuit looks around a little bit. And he knows we're just by himself. Goes, so Officer Fitzgerald said, yeah. Actually, he knew I was Sergeant then, but I didn't bother correcting him. He <laughs> said, I mean, Sergeant Fitzgerald. Um, I'm not sure if you knew this. But you know how close you were to being killed that night by me? And this kind of takes me aback, but you can't show these guys fear. You can't show surprise. And I said, uh, tell me, Tim. It wasn't his real name. <clears throat> well, you know I had a sawed-off shotgun next to me in the car under some degree. I said, oh, yeah, we found it later. Well, do you know, as you were walking up to me, I was going to pull that on you, blast you, and take off. Because I knew what we had just done. Okay. Mm keep going. And he said, but I got to tell you, you put that friggin' spotlight in my eyes. You stood behind me the whole time. I had to reach, look over my shoulder. I knew your left hand, you're a lefty. So he's sizing me up this whole time. And he, I saw your left, you're a lefty in your hand. You had the advantage. I knew I couldn't have gotten my gun out quick enough. So I let you live. Wow. I kind of look at him and sort of sardonically, well, thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. Now let's bring in <laughs> the other two guys uh, that were involved here. But I did actually walk away. You had chills. It was kind of one of those holy S moments where um, on the way home in the car with the ADA, I kind of told him, and, oh, that's interesting, Jim. But he wasn't a gun, a gun carrier, a sworn officer, and it never uh, – but it isn't too often in life that I think anybody gets a chance to kind of have a replay of something happened in your earlier life by another person who was there, and it happened to be something about – it could have cost you your life. And yeah, I, this guy mistake. was a badass. He had a, a long criminal record. You know, he had assaulted some people in prison. 
but you know he was trying to get out and work a deal out and all that stuff and the last part of the story was um the two people we did try to arrest we got one of them to confess the other one used the twin defense he had an identical twin brother who was not on the scene oh wow and the defense attorneys brought in the identical twin brother and even they got to look different as they got older in life they didn't dress alike but Mm -hmm. they purposely dressed them the defendant and the twin brother sitting in the audience dressed alike. They wore the same glasses, the same haircut. And the defense attorney, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, look who's sitting in the audience today. That's, you know, Jim Smith, Tim's brother. Oh, I say different names. But, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and the audience, uh, the audience, the jury actually got confused and they acquitted the twin who was on trial, which we, who know, we know who he, he, that he did it. He partook in it. But having an identical twin, I guess, every once in a while. Uh, pays in life. I think he was killed a few years later in a shootout with someone, and so his life of crime uh, didn't go any further. But so an amazing story there, and I do say oh, yeah. because I didn't, I didn't receive a radio call. There was no, you know, a source or informant information. This was happening. This was just a cop being paying attention to his, uh, you know, what's happening in front of him, and that caused the car stop to happen. But I also remembered the van, and I'm also proud of the survival skills that I was taught at the police academy and, and with senior officers in the meantime, you got to always keep your guard up even when it looks rather innocuous. And, uh, and I think that, uh, definitely saved me that light that night. And, uh, that guy, uh, did a long term in prison, uh, um, you know, because of it. And, but more importantly, I'm still alive. So thanks for bringing that story up. I, uh, yeah, I devote a whole chapter of that in there and it really, it, it it really did open some doors for me in law enforcement and, and uh, police work. And, uh, and um, it, 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 it's to this day stays the, the arrest I'm most proud of because it was me from the very beginning to the very end that uh, uh, brought resolution to it. Yeah. The twins can screw up a DNA case even. Yes, it can. I'm familiar with that, but this is just strictly <laughs> visual oh, okay. identification in this case. And that's all it took. Now, um, I thought of something while you were describing the fact that you were studying when this went down and you had mentioned that there, you kind of got into some political issues there. Is it possible the fact that you were in school trying to get a degree and things like that? Maybe I I've been in the military and things like that. And sometimes that can go against the grain of others who may be slightly more blue collar. Uh, excellent question. Um, <clears throat> and I did have a college degree already, but I was working on my master's at Villanova at this point. And, uh, and yeah, when this, just for the record, when this arrest went down, I wasn't literally studying, but I had my books with me looking for a nice place to pull over. Here right. I'm at this red light, the van, the car, all that stuff. Um, but what I, what I always try to, I try to create a paradigm when I tell this story in that to younger people today, I do a lot of talks on college campuses and all. In that in many professions, including law enforcement, there was a time, you know, boys and girls, as I'm talking to them, where, you know, uh, women had a lot of, uh, you know, restrictions against them. And basically, when I was growing up, a woman with few exceptions, you know, uh, secretary, nurse, you know, teacher, you know, maybe stewardess, as they called then, flight attendants, library, I mean, the jobs like that and all good jobs, I guess, if you were had some blessed with some kind of looks uh, or build. You could be a model or a, certainly a, a, an actor of some sort. But um, 
my point to all this, though, is right in the early 70s, as I'm getting my degree at Penn State University in basically criminal justice, um, <clears throat> there are some women taking these courses, too. And next, lo and behold, they're also applying for uh, law enforcement jobs around the country. So what I found is, um, and also for the first time in law enforcement uh, agencies, college graduates are, 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 are mixing among them. Either guys are going to school, already on the job, getting their degrees, or they're coming in hired with degrees. And um, so I always like to relate to um, women in law enforcement, and I was there with them side by side, and I was taking some of the barbs some of the verbal punches, at least, um, of being sort of an outsider, an outlier, if you will, and that, you know, here are women coming into law enforcement. Oh, lady, don't let your, uh, you know, your your smaller physique, you know, whatever, uh, you know, get me killed. This is like an old senior cop talking. But they'd also, almost in the same breath, look over at me and say, hey, kid, don't let your college degree get me killed either. Mm. So... I felt a, a kinship to some degree a, and a relationship with my sisters in law enforcement because here I am a college grad in law enforcement. We're both we're both new. We're both sort of uh, you know tra- uh, trailblazers here in that regard. And no one's saying we were better or or smarter or we you know became better cops in the long run. Everybody is still different in uh, in how they do their job, how they pay attention, and their work ethic, and all those type things. But um, but I was a strong proponent, and there are some you know females now my age who are rookies with me uh, that you know are appreciative of the fact that I stood there by them when they took some grief, and I would back them up uh, on different calls, or maybe some other officers didn't or took their time getting there. And quite frankly, I realized the value of women uh, officers. I mean, this sounds so right to even say it now big deal woman man you know um in terms of the job you know if, if they're hardworking, they're smart and they care about it uh, they're going to do well but there are some domestic situations which uh you know mm. the husband's drunk and he's slapping the wife around or right. the kids whatever we get called and two male cops show up this guy wants to fight both of us right. but we learned after a while send the female in keep her in sight because she may be smaller and thinner but there's no macho uh, macho type thing going on and she could almost always calm him down. We would deal, you know, with the wife. Everybody's in sight of each other, and uh, and in most cases that worked uh, in, in in a great deal. So, so yeah, the college degree was almost like a curse uh, on some of us coming into law enforcement in the mid '70s when I did. But um, you know, right alongside of us were the were female officers, and uh, we both kind of went through our little uh, you know uh, hazing period together. But I think. Uh, uh, you know, everybody eventually proved themselves and, uh, and, and, and we all, you know, worked out fine. And now most departments around the country, you need at least a two-year degree and many of them require a full four-year degree, which is fine. And of course, there's no limitations at all for, uh, you know, for sex, male, female, you know, whatever, as long as you can do the push-ups and run, you know, the mile on a certain time, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you should be eligible to uh, get into law enforcement. Right. That leads into, uh, a story that kind of tangentially I, I um, related to, I guess you'd say. My wife is actually uh, the library director at Langley Air Force Base and a librarian. Oh, okay. um, and way back when I was dating her in the 90s and we were early married in the early 80s, she had been in Who's Who every year. And 
it was. I think the, I know where. I think I know where this is going. <laughs> but go ahead. There, there was a, a funny story with it, and then it'll get to dark stories with you. But um, one time, I don't know, it was around two thousand five or six. I had written my first book, and I was feeling really good about myself. And I got a letter saying, you know, from who's who, addressed to me. And I was like, wow, maybe I could be in who's who. Well, it turned out that they were offering me the ability to buy extra books since I knew somebody in Who's Who. No. So that okay. was kind of a funny anecdote. But yes. there's also the uh, less funny anecdote because the Internet wasn't really around in the 80s and 90s. And Who's Who was um, used as a tool. Can you go into that? Yes, it, yes, it was. And as a kid... Maybe I forget exactly when who, who, who's who first came out. <clears throat> but as a joke, I remember walking into the, and, and I got friendly with a librarian at my local library in Philadelphia. Hey, what's the biggest book you have in here? It was always who's who. <laughs> but of course, you couldn't check it out. It was a reference book kept right. in that little reference section. And there may have been one or two books bigger, but one of the thicker books around. Uh, and sometimes it was in two parts. And basically, um, Eric, as you know, what who's who is, it's ostensibly uh, people, and I think they're broken down by country, but certainly people in the U.S. who who made a name for themselves in, in some usually positive way. And it could be, you know, politicians, could be, uh, uh, you know, business people. It may not be people you always read about in the newspaper or, or, or in the media, but they would be in there, uh, you know, leaders of their industry or scientists, things like that. Well, um it didn't take too long in the Unibom investigation, and your your listeners knew we were going to head there eventually. Um, <laughs> and um, and that uh, and before I was on board, uh, remember the the first bombings were 1978. I didn't come on board until 95. There, and actually, all the bombings had been completed by the time I got on board the Unibom task force. But um, in the in the uh, in the mid 80s before the first series of bombings stopped. Remember, uh, the Unabomber went from 78 to 87, and there were uh, 12 bombings then. And he stopped when the iconic composite sketch was released. He must have thought it looked like him, you know, the aviator sunglasses and the hoodie, and and for whatever reason, he stopped bombing. But when a lot of uh, extra research was being paid attention, when some time was there to do it, um, the the uh, investigators knew that victimology had to be determined somehow. Why was this Unabomber person choosing the victims that he chose? <clears throat> and while not all of them were 100% clear, some bombs, some uh, improvised explosive devices, IEDs, were just left at the scene. Others of them were sent through the mail to people. And this certainly included, it's the only way that the Unabomber uh, uh, killed people when he came back in 1993 with his devices and they were only sent through the mail because he almost got caught when the person saw him and created that composite sketch. Bottom line is long story here. Um, what they determined is the Unabomber was getting his victim information, his target information, if you will, from the book, who's who. <laughs> and we know that because with two of the victims, there was actually a mistake in who's who. I mean, the name was right, you know, so-and-so, you know, comma, junior, uh, 1510 Fifth Avenue, where the person actually lived 1510 
Fifth Street, but the Unabomber picked up the avenue from Who's Who, which is really the only place it was mistakenly listed. And then some other uh, target, some other victim, had a similar sort of mistake in the address to his package. Very minor, insignificant mistake, uh, but it was also in Who's Who. So that's when uh, investigators became convinced. Uh, and it was really one of the only clues we had at the time uh, before the manifesto was received was that this guy frequented one or more libraries somewhere and he was using these who's who book uh, somewhere to pick out his target information. So as you can imagine, that became a lead to every FBI division in the U.S. and uh, an agent in every division and every resident agency. And uh, there's 56 divisions and hundreds of smaller satellite offices. An agent was assigned to go to every library in uh, his or her region and interview the head librarian and others and ask, have you seen anybody coming around here and looking at this book maybe a bit disheveled, and we try to give the profile of what the person looked like. Um, I'm not sure they said disheveled, but just someone seems very, you know, uh, mission-oriented, very focused, maybe doesn't talk a whole lot, and maybe just uses this book, nothing else. And, you know, some information came out of that. Uh, you know, maybe check this guy out, check that guy. But the bottom line is nothing of any positive value came out from those leads. It turns out we were right, and even in uh, when we went inside – Kaczynski's cabin and found all his documentation about everything he did. Sure enough, there are some handwritten references to who's who book volume, you know, 72, whatever it was. And there's some potential target information listed there. So yeah, the uh, kudos to the agents, whoever figured out that somehow that is where Kaczynski was getting his target information. You'd also do other research if it's some kind of a computer scientist or some kind of a a marketing executive, like with Thomas Moser, his penultimate uh, bombing victim in, uh, in in northern New Jersey in November of uh, of uh, 1994, and he worked for a marketing firm that was representing Exxon after the Exxon Valdez oil spill uh, in in, uh, in in the 1980s, and uh, and and so the Unabomber was mad at that guy, and he sent him a bomb, but his address, his actual home address came out of the who's who book. So yes, uh, the Unabomber knew how to use a library and he certainly knew the value of who's who. It would be of course, uh, anti-technology for him to go on the internet to look up these addresses. Of course, the internet wasn't around for most of his bombing career, but it wasn't too high tech to borrow from, um, you know, the 500 year old printing press. <laughs> I guess that was pre pre industrial revolution. So that was okay. And, uh, and look at a book in a library and uh, come up with the, the exact address of where he was going to send one of his lethal bombs. So, so again, knowing that this guy was going to a library was one clue that we were pretty sure was accurate. And, and it was, in fact, accurate. But as we know, there's thousands and thousands of little libraries, university libraries, municipal libraries, everything in between. And, uh, and unfortunately, no one saw... If anybody went to the Lincoln, Montana library, uh, after all these years, I'm not sure if they actually went there. Uh, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, nothing positive came out of that lead. Okay. I was going to ask that also, um, couple rapid or 
a few rapid fire questions because you talk about Kaczynski quite a lot in a ton of podcasts and I recommend people check them out. And obviously your long chapter in the book and you have a mini series. So there's a wealth of material out there. Um, before he was caught though, I'm curious, you had a uh, 2,500 suspects. Was he one of those 2,500 suspects? Uh, no. And I usually round that number off. So there were 2,499 before him and he became the 2500th suspect. Um, No. Uh, We had databases from places that his name would have been in, but because the earlier profiles had him as a younger person, they didn't go back into the 70s or or, or even the 1960s when he would have been at um, uh, University of Michigan, where he would have had a driver's license in Illinois, uh, in Utah, uh, or even at Berkeley in California, because you know bombs were sent to University of Michigan, and that's where, uh, or at least one uh, expl- uh, uh, device was sent there in 1985. That's where Kaczynski got his doctorate degree, master's and doctorate in math. Uh, Kaczynski taught at Berkeley in the late 60s, uh, and, a, and, a, and a, at least one device went there, maybe even two, mm-hmm. if memory serves correct, and. Uh, so we figured maybe somehow this person has some kind of a connection. So uh, if we kept going backwards, like another 10 years on these databases, we eventually would have found, what we were looking for, of course, is a, a nexus to one person or even 100 persons mm-hmm. who has, you know, who's living in Illinois at the time of these bombings, who perhaps went to one of the universities in Illinois, which Kaczynski never did, who was living in Utah for a while, which Kaczynski did a bit, who, and who may have had a driver's license there, who may have had mm. a driver's license in California, who may have gone to Berkeley, and they put all these databases together and start spitting out, you know, like uh, names, and most likely would have been, you know, 100, 200 names. And we had these, we had these names. All of them were checked, but none of them were our, our person. Um, so we were in the process, after the manifesto went out, of taking the databases and, and, you know, going back to these locations and getting uh, updated versions of them going back 10 more years. And I think we could possibly then have come up with the name Theodore J. Kaczynski and, oh, guy living in a cabin in Montana. It's probably not him, but let's go check him out. And sure enough, uh, it would have been him. So uh, um, he was not on that list of 2,500 suspects, some who were named, some who were weren't, who weren't named. Some who were called in by ex-wives and and uh, lawyers, or oh, it's my husband, and it's you know my client who hasn't paid me for a year, and so we knew some of those were sort of frivolous. Others came in. Oh, I saw a guy on the BART, you know, the San Francisco subway system. Uh, he looked just like the composite, but you know, no name. Oh, yeah, it was a date and a location. So a lot of the suspects were there. We did have some names on others, some with military backgrounds, some with you know uh, explosive training type backgrounds. But all of those, uh, you know, fell off the uh, fell off the table until all of a sudden Theodore J. Kaczynski, and he didn't, even, he didn't even go to the top right away because, like I said, a college professor living in a cabin and no car and no means to get around. But once we got the linguistics involved, and it was my team that was in charge of, uh, you know, building the case against him from a language perspective, well, it was uh, pretty clear to us that uh, we've got our man, and that's how that all came down. Very cool. And 
I do want to put a pin into the hoax letters or, you know, people calling in false confessions and things like that and maybe talk about it in a minute. Um, couple other observations about Kaczynski before I move on. One, I find it kind of ironic, and I don't know if you do as well, that you have mentioned several times that he was nearly perfect in his writing, grammar, spelling, everything he did. Isn't it kind of the ultimate irony that his usage of the you can't eat your cake and have it too was in fact correct, but because it was antiquated, that's what got him, was being too perfect? Yeah, I mean, uh, irony uh, with a capital I and uppercase letters and underlined and uh, emboldened, yeah, uh, it is. And he was very proud of his language. You know, math and language are not all that different if you take a a generative syntax course, which I did in attaining my second master's degree, uh, this one at at, uh, Georgetown. And um, so as a mathematician and and be able to, you know, do numbers, uh, do wonders with numbers and mathematical formula, whatever, he was just as proud in how he would construct, uh, you know, a sentence formula, so to speak. And, And you're right. He virtually never made a mistake. He even included a corrections page to the front cover of the manifesto, you know, Industrial Society and its Future by FC, the next three pages are corrections that he wanted the reader to know uh, before they, you know, actually got into the body of, uh, of, the, uh, of the manifesto itself. And, and we did some research, of course, and uh, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, that, uh, of course, the manifesto was not uh, typed on a word processor. It was a 1930s-era manual typewriter so you just couldn't cut and paste and delete and and uh, and change your words around but you notice a mistake so but in the early days of writing theses and dissertations you were allowed to actually formally present them at your defense or you know uh, turning it into your university with a corrections page because you just you, no one could rewrite an entire thesis they left out one word or even something like that and and again i to use the word ironic uh, it's the Unabomber's mistakes were so minor. Is the period inside the quotation mark or outside the quotation mark at the end of a sentence? Did he spell, you know, there, T-H-E-I-R, when it should have been T-H-E-R-E? Everybody knew what it meant. It's a common typo. And just, and these are at three pages of these. So, yeah, that showed us, that showed us his, his, the importance of language to him, the importance of being perfect. Um, and, of course, you couple this with his devices. Um, they didn't always kill. They always uh, detonated to some degree. They didn't always kill as he would have preferred. He had to go through, I think, eight, maybe even ten bombings before he successfully killed someone in uh, 1985 in his first actual successful bombing in that regard. So, But he was very proud of his writing style, and it had to bother him to no end that his, uh, you know, uh, his uh, august, uh, uh, you know, uh, utilization of this, you know, 16th century proverb or axiom, uh, probably originally written as ye can eat ye cake and have it too, uh, of course, was changed around the beginning of the 20th century for some reason, where it's you can't have your cake and eat it too. Which, when you think about it, doesn't make as much sense as the other way around, and right. um, and that was the key. Um, 
that was really the key that opened his cabin door in terms of a search warrant because I had people, you know, hey, Fitz, you know, have fun, run with your little word, you know, collection thing there, and we'll get back to you. And everyone's looking for the fingerprints and looking for, uh, you know, any kind of other type of evidence, eyewitness uh, evidence that could put Kaczynski somewhere near a crime scene. But it really came down to uh, what got that uh, cabin door open legally with a search warrant was uh, <laughs> a reference to a cake and, and eating it and having it at the same time. And, and about 500 uh, uh, and uh, 99 other side by side comparisons to of almost identical sentences, certainly thematically, topically and grammatically uh, written by Ted Kaczynski, but also written by the Unabomber. And that's eventually what a judge looked at and said, you know, well, if these are written this close, uh, this, these, these closely assembled sentences, uh, there's at least enough for a search warrant here. Go for it. And uh, and the rest, as they say, is uh, book, television and criminal justice uh, history. <laughs> the last item on Ted Kaczynski, and it's kind of an observation, but I find another irony. It seems in some ways that he may be happy as a clam where he is right now. It matches his cabin. He's fed, he's clothed, and he probably can get all the books he wants. Um, you're not far off, Eric. Um, I've read some of the things he's written. I, uh, I tried to interview him once in 2007 and it fell through and I sent him a letter back in 2016 and he never answered it, <clears throat> but I know he's writing to other people and some of those letters have been published. Uh, and I know he fell in love with someone. Uh, he finally met a woman and uh, uh, he was very frustrated in his life as a heterosexual man. He was a virgin well into his, uh, well, certainly into his mid-50s, and uh, by no choice of his own. And uh, all of a sudden, he, um, uh, he goes off to prison, and he's this hero of this, uh, this anarchist set, and, the, uh, and you, know, uh, you know, leftists, as he would describe in his manifesto, now they're writing him, left and right, some are coming to visit him. Like I said, he was engaged. He finally met a woman who was engaged to be married, and very sadly, she was uh, diagnosed with cancer, and she died. And I, I felt bad for her, and maybe the one woman he ever uh, loved, you know, died when they never could even touch each other. They would just talk through a phone and with a thick inch-thick uh, inch piece of glass between them, and they could never even touch. There would be no conjugal visits in the federal system, so that's the best they could do. And, Question uh, about her. Was she a hebristophiliac? Meaning about being touched or germs or something? No, no. Remind um, me. Um, hybris, it's hard to say. Hybristophilia. I talked to another psychologist about it. It's about women who are particularly attracted to serial killers and spree killers. Okay. Uh, I've probably heard that before there not too many of those women out there but i guess there's now enough to give them their own separate category uh and aphelia uh was she one of those i believe he was the only one that she had any interest in i don't think she was a serial killer groupie okay <laughs> i'm sure they're out there bounce prison to prison so i don't know if she's ever been diagnosed with anything like that i know somebody wrote about her some journalist picked up on that story and I don't think her family was too thrilled that she was 
spending all this time focused on Ted Kaczynski, a serial killer. And um, uh, so uh, that was uh, her story. And she's uh, she stuck to it with her family. But again, then she got sick and uh, and died. But other people I've been writing them and supposedly he gets these very graphic letters from some women describing mm. all sorts of uh, bizarre sex acts. And he actually turns some over to the correctional staff and, and say, so you may want to recommend the, this woman, you know, she's a psychologist and he doesn't even like or believe in psychology or, or psychiatry. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I'm not sure how many other women like that have come to him. I'm certainly aware of those women. I'm not sure. I, it's been a while since I've heard that term that you mentioned. So you caught me off guard there, but that's, that's fine. And, uh, but there are a number of uh, women strangely like that. And I know Seinfeld had an episode about that and though where George was visiting a woman in prison and everything was so cool then finally she escapes and now the whole <laughs> the whole relationship's ruined because uh, no I want you behind bars it's a whole different way of control then you know blah 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 so uh uh so yeah there's a whole bizarre mindset and these Menendez brothers supposedly have women writing to them left and right uh about uh you know getting engaged or married or whatever and it's uh it's just a uh, kind of a sad commentary uh, and I, I'll let other people uh, discuss what would attract women to them. I'm, I don't think you see too many men doing this with women, no. violent offenders. And there are women, violent offenders incarcerated for life or close to it. But this seems to be something strictly on the female. And I guess maybe they've been cheated on in the past and they realize my guy's not going to cheat on me, at least not with another woman in prison. So Maybe yeah. that's all I need out of a man in my life. And he's controlled, and there's Beauty and the Beast. I also very much. Um, I my pet theory, and I shared with a psychologist he hadn't heard before, is that they may be not dissimilar to these um, really beautiful teachers who take advantage of students. I kind of feel like it's control. Uh, that's that's a very valid observation, and I I, I wouldn't discount that. Have you visited? Any other cases, and one that comes to mind is um, BTK. I wondered if you had explored any of his writings while you were in the FBI. I did. Um, I didn't do much with the original killings, which I think were most, I know they're Wichita, Kansas area, and they were in the 1980s. And when I came into the FBI, I went right to New York City after the academy and worked plenty of cases there and then uh, became a profiler in 1995. First case was Unibon. So I came back from that, and I think it was the early 2000s after the BTK had taken uh, a few years off, upwards of 10 years, I think. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden now uh, he's writing letters and doing this, that, and the other. And and, uh, one of the profilers in my unit, of course, knew I was – studying forensic linguistics at Georgetown, and I had used language to successfully uh, help solve the Unibom case. And he said, hey, can you look at this letter uh, written by BTK back in the early days? So this wasn't even one of his newer letters or whatever was found in the computer disk somehow. Um, uh, This was something that was handwritten. And he said, does this look like a native English speaker or someone who's maybe uh, mentally challenged uh, or has some kind of a you know, autism or dyslexia, anything like that. So I studied this letter for a better part of a, of a, of a half day. And it was only about two or three pages long, if I recall. And I wound up saying, um, 
Um, no, this guy is using disguise. He writes English perfectly fine, but there is something in here that, uh, uh, you know, he just wanted to disguise who he is for his identity identification purposes. And he makes up this mm. kind of gibberish language. And because they weren't sure, or that they should, they look for a person who's mentally challenged in and out of mental institutions or have been so diagnosed by the courts or someone, again, autistic or Asperger, something like that, or perhaps someone who didn't speak English as a second language. And I put all that aside and saying, look, I don't know who your killer is at this point. So I really wasn't getting into the depth of the case itself, because uh, other agents were doing it, of course, and the Wichita PD. But I said, this letter right here that you show me, uh, this is consistent with the other letters he sent, which are written in regular English, and uh, and this person is uh, employing disguise here because there's no there's no pattern there's no consistency to the different types of uh, of, uh, of language features that were used. They're like being made up as this person went along. So um, so I was actually going to write a report for them and sort of link all these letters together. And literally, uh, I was like a day away from sitting down and spending you know uh, you know eight hours or so putting this report together. And uh, the fellow profiler walks in the room, says, "Forget the report. They just made an arrest yesterday. They got they got BTK." Oh wow! Said, wow, great great job. So, uh, and you know, if we were going to go to trial, perhaps I could uh, I would have testified something about these letters. But he wound up confessing, and there never was a trial. And uh, so, yeah, that was my little role. I didn't do anything to solve the case. I was there kind of as a backup, but that he was employing disguise. Unlike the Unabomber, the Unabomber never used disguise in any of his writings. Uh, he didn't have to because he knew he was so far removed from any of his victims, uh, and they were nationwide, where BTK, of course, was striking mostly right within the, the confines of Wichita, uh, mm. Kansas, and uh, and uh, he wanted to kind of remove himself. So he decided to just kind of write one letter in sort of a tricky form, perhaps making it look like, uh, I say tricky, but in a, in a way that which disguise was used, to make it look like perhaps yet another killer was involved in, in one particular crime, but that wasn't the case. They were all BTK, and he wrote all the letters involved in that case. Perfect, perfect segue into what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, forensic countermeasures, and you just brought up one reason for it, I guess the uh, majority of the time is proximity, that the closer they are, maybe the more countermeasures they will use. And... Would you say that this has been going on for a long time, going all the way back to uh, Jack the Ripper, let's say? Um, yeah, and I mean, forensic countermeasures, also referred to as crime scene staging. Um, and um, there are various uh, ways uh, an offender can uh, enact you know, sort of these measures to, in fact, cover up who is really involved. Uh, so, um, and usually the closer a criminal is to the crime, meaning not just geographical proximity, but perhaps with some connection to the victim or victims, that is when you'll tend to see some level of staging or forensic countermeasures. Uh, Kaczynski didn't really, uh, uh, well, the Unabombers, we only knew him then, didn't really tend to do him too much because of um, uh, he was so far removed from any one suspect list. He did, in, uh, from a forensic perspective, and one of the envelopes he mailed to someone, maybe Dr. 
a Lerner at Yale, there was a, uh, a blonde hair under the stamp. And it was so clear that this hair under the stamp, it, it was just so, uh, uh, it was so out of the, out of the ordinary for our Unabomber person because he was so careful about evidence and not leaving it, of course, on the documents he wrote and sent to the New York Times and others, and certainly on the IEDs he shipped out. So this blonde hair was seen as something like a forensic countermeasure, and we didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. Uh, it was certainly maintained, but uh, it turns out we found in one of his notes or journal entries after his arrest that on his way to uh, San Francisco by bus, he was in a public men's room. There's a blonde hair on the floor. He picked ah. it up, saved it, and when he finally put the put the letter together to mail off the device, uh, whether it was a device or actually uh, a letter, uh, he, he, he carefully inserted that there. Uh, but Kaczynski, um, and I'll call him Unabomber, we didn't know who he was yet, mm-hmm. in a few of his letters, including the Dr. Galertner, there was some uh, disguise, and you could arguably, arguably call them forensic countermeasures. Um, um, I also call them contraindicators, and that is a few lines of uh, within language that he used to throw off the investigators. And in the letter to Dr. Nicolertner, there's two different sentences about a paragraph apart in which he states that um, he, um, the very one of the very first sentences of that letter is, apparently people without college degrees don't count. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, in that negated form of that sentence, it's clear that, you know, ostensibly it's clear that the author doesn't have a college degree. And the next paragraph down, about six sentences later, it's, uh, and even people without, uh, and, and, you know, just because you have a advanced degree doesn't make you smarter than me. I'm paraphrasing here. Mm-hmm. It's all right. The person doesn't have an advanced degree. It doesn't have a college degree. This coming from a guy who makes no mistakes with his, with his devices. There's no evidence at all on them, uh, of any sort to, to link to any one person. Don't um, have to protest too much. Exactly. And you put this in a letter and you're sort of, and, and we know it's not much, but you're, you're sort of telling the reader that you're a, you know, you have no more than a high school degree. So that's not a whole lot, but it does narrow down the suspect pool. And I just couldn't, uh, I said, no, something's not right here. This guy is, he's adding this in as a contraindicator. He is clearly, uh, he clearly has an advanced degree of some sort. And then when I, I dug out some of his other letters that nobody really paid too much attention to, and in a letter he wrote to the New York Times about publishing his manifesto, et cetera, et cetera, and of course he always used the plural pronoun we, which we knew was bogus, we knew it was one person. Mm-hmm. And uh, in one of those letters he wrote, uh, we're getting tired of uh, going into the Sierra Nevadas and with our practice bombs, you know, uh, after work and on weekends. It wasn't the Royal so this guy's trying to... I'm sorry? It wasn't the royal we? I'm out of curiosity. No, it wasn't the royal we. We felt he certainly <laughs> meant uh, there's uh, his group FC, okay. uh, which stood for Freedom Club, as he eventually wrote people. So all of a sudden, uh, he's now telling us he lives in sort of central California near the Sierra uh, Nevada mountain range. And by describing when he would go into these mountains to practice with his bombings, um, he has like a full-time job Monday through Friday, nine to five, because he's going in at night times and weekends. I said, no, mm. first of all, this guy doesn't live in California and he doesn't have 
a daily, everyday job. So now let's paint this into our updated profile, and we did that. <clears throat> so that's just one example with the Unabomber of, of ways he would try to trick people. Uh, I found with a lot of other cases, and especially of like husbands who murder their wives, wives who murder their husbands, they know they're going to be likely suspects. They'll come up with letters sometimes, and I've actually come up with a name for them. I, I actually coined this term, and I, I've put it in a few, um, uh, an article in, in my book. It's uh, POMIC. And it's a lot of syllables coming up, Eric, so pay attention. Okay. POMIC stands for Post-Offense Manipulation of Investigation Communication. So essentially, if someone's sending a letter after a crime's been committed, uh, because they know they're a likely suspect, and they're going to say that, you know, Joe Smith didn't do it, the likely suspect. Uh, you know, someone else did from uh, the next county over. In fact, it may even be this guy, and they put some, you know, well-known criminal name in there, and mm. and they try to dumb down the letter. They try to include things in there that they wouldn't normally write. But if you're a, a forensic linguist with some experience in this area, you can definitely determine some of these features, some of these factors, and um, and uh, and you can figure out what's real and what's uh, and and what's not real and what's trying to be covered up here. And the more work someone puts into disguising their writing style, and I don't just mean handwriting. Anybody. Anybody can kind of do that, mm -hmm. but uh, you, uh, you you realize that the person is probably that much that much closer to the crime itself, and that says narrow in on someone you know very much nearby. So, uh, and uh, it's it's sort of something with use of the term POMIC that I put together, and I've been teaching in my forensic linguistic courses ever since. And, uh, and a lot of linguists, a lot of academics, brilliant people that have studied language their whole lives, and they're finally asked, you know. 10 or 20 or even later, 30 years into their linguistic career of, of studying vowel charts and, and the use of certain pronunciations of words in, in New England as opposed to the Deep South. And, and they're used to studying actual people's speaking style, their mm -hmm. vernacular. But then all of a sudden, I have to teach them, no, criminals and bad people who are trying to cover up a crime or, or create a crime to this, they will employ an unnatural method, usually of writing in this case, that's not natural to who they are. Mm. And that's where some linguists get tripped up uh, and, and say no, because criminals don't want to be caught. And they'll spend, especially an anonymous, an anonymous author uh, who wants to get away with some kind of a crime, a cover-up, or you know, whatever it may be, using this letter or this blog post, whatever, they'll spend as much time you know, with the crime itself as they will also trying to keep anonymous in the communications they're putting together. So it's just, um, it's just, um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing the amount of work people will put into these type of letters. And sometimes they look very basic and very much put together quickly. But I've realized that these people may put a lot of thought and time into it, including how to keep themselves anonymous. And they will pretend <laughs> to uh, perhaps have a lesser writing skill ability than they would normally possess. But as I've always said, it's uh, much easier to dumb down in your writing style than it is to smart up. Mm, so, uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, it's very difficult for people who don't have good writing or communication skills, unless they're plagiarizing something word for word to in fact, uh, you know, make themselves seem, you know, smarter than they normally are. But a lot of people, uh, you know, doctors I've worked, you know, nurses, lawyers, uh, that wrote, wrote out these letters, then they're generally good writers in real life. Mm -hmm. But they try to make these mistakes that just make no sense, and uh, <laughs> and that's how we can ferret them out 
and get some of their known writings. And believe it or not, the punctuation features and some archaic spellings or, or, or something, even spacing between words, if it's handwritten, can help put them in jail for life. And mm. there's a few in jail for life thanks to the linguistic work that I did in those cases. So they're almost too clever by half. You could say that, yeah. And if they didn't write the letter at all, same with Kaczynski, uh, the Unabomber. I mean, uh, people have asked me all the time, if, if he never wrote any letters at all, do you think we would have caught him? And I said, I'll tell you, this would have been a lot tougher uh, mm. without his, uh, his, uh, his letters to the New York Times, the manifesto. And uh, we knew, and that's why we wanted to get it published, we knew somebody would recognize this somewhere. We all thought a teacher, a professor, <clears throat> someone like that, or some you know writing partner or something, and maybe a family member. We didn't rule that out. And here it was, uh, you know, David, his brother, that that came upon it and uh, took him a few months to make the call. But luckily, nobody else uh, died in the meantime. And uh, uh, but yeah, but uh, people who tend to uh, write in association with their crimes tend to be a little bit smarter than the uh, the average bear, and they think they can get away with it. And they think they know enough about language to disguise enough about who they really are. But um, a good linguist can um, can break all that down and tell a lot about the person based on the language utilized, either spoken or written. And of course, the more the better, and uh, and hopefully solve uh, you know solve the crime before too long. Thank God for narcissism, right? Uh, that's a big part of it. You're right. <laughs> Speaking of that, um, evil genius. There was a docu-series on that. I think they called it the Pizza Bomber case at one point. But would that be considered a prime example of what you just described? Yeah, I worked that case in real time in the uh, early uh, 2000s. And um, out of Erie, Pennsylvania, our, our FBI uh, office up there, those and a few state police people came to Quantico a few times over that. I did spend some time uh, working through that letter. That letter is on my uh, list as one of the oddest letters I've ever seen or read in my life, uh, certainly in terms of a criminal case. And um, uh, I did offer, you know, some information, some advice on it. Uh, but yeah, there were, there, there's definitely uh, people with, you know, high level of intelligence, high level of narcissism, always a dangerous combination there, uh, throwing egotism and, you know, self-loathing and, uh, and, and hatred of a lot of people around you and authority figures. And that's really all that thing was, uh, meaning the uh, evil genius matter with the, with the pizza delivery person. Uh, it was almost like a big, fancy game they wanted to play, challenge everybody around them. The bonus would have been getting the money, but if not, hey, let's have some fun doing it. And that's, uh, to me, that's the top, uh, uh, that's the priority reason they actually undertook what they did was, uh, yeah, we can get some money out of this. That's really cool. But let's run the cops all over town. And this pizza guy, he's, he's meaningless to us anyway. So why even worry about him? And, uh, uh, but, uh, bizarre case. And, uh, yeah, I would have hated to be one of those uniform cops. I was a uniform cop. And if I was the guy that came up with him with the device wrapped around his neck, mm. I'd have to believe him. I, I wouldn't want to be too close to him. And, I wouldn't be sure exactly how to get the device off him because apparently he was booby trapped in a half dozen different ways. So, uh, yeah, uh, both evil and genius were involved there. And, um, you know, pride goeth before the storm. And eventually it took a few years, but uh, I think those people are all where they should be right now. And quite frankly, I think mostly dead, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Now, moving forward, I said put a pin in it, but I think this leads well into you had, probably had to deal with a lot of hoax letters, false confessions, things of that sort. As a forensic linguist, how do you deal with that? Um, can you be a little more specific in what you mean um, about that? Well, I imagine some of the uh, crimes that you investigate, especially if they get popular, other people may write in and take credit. Okay. Sure. Uh, yeah, and there's less false confessions in those regards because we don't actually, they won't sign their name. They just want to throw off the case and, and have some fun doing it. Um, and uh, I remember the um, um, the Wall Street Journal um, reporter who was kidnapped in Pakistan in uh, uh, early 2002, Pearl? right after... Uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel Pearl? Pearl, right after okay. uh, 9-11, and of course we had the anthrax scare, I think it was January of 2002, which was a few months later, he was kidnapped, and the and various media outlets uh, received the pictures of him with the gun held to his head and holding mm-hmm. up the newspaper, and, uh, and lo and behold, I was asked to analyze that original um, uh, newspaper, or those, that, the original email, but then, of course, a dozen other emails came in, at least, because the media put these things out, you know, public right away. So all of a sudden now they're tasking me with, Jim, we know this one is real. Can you try to give us a linguistic profile of who wrote it? They're the ones with the attachments of Daniel Pearl. So I was doing an analysis of those things. But then also um, the other dozen, there may have been 15 to 20 emails that were coming into the same news agencies. Yeah, we have them now. We're going to take them, you know, here, we're going to take them there. He's already dead. And then, you know, so I was tasked with breaking down each one of those and I could readily um, uh, uh, disavow each of those other ones that came in as being bogus and having nothing to do with the real, um, the, the real matter at hand. And I did provide a profile of the writer of, uh, of the original email and it matched up pretty close to, in fact, the actual author, who was a native speaker of uh, Urdu, you know, in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. But uh, he learned his English in the British system, possibly even in the UK, because it was it was sufficient enough, it was high functioning enough. But uh, but there were a few issues in there that I said he's probably not a native Brit, and of course he wasn't. He was from Pakistan, went to college in uh, the UK, and then came back, became a terrorist, kidnapped. Pearl and we know how that all worked out. So yeah, what we always try to do though is um, Kaczynski was smart as the Unabomber and he included a nine digit number in all the letters he wrote to the New York times. Mm. So in fact, he, he knew enough about these fake people who in fact um, would, uh, um, you know, could, could possibly try to uh, assume his identity and pretend they're the Unabomber so he included that social security looking number uh, to <laughs> keep his remote from others. And um, we also had um, the Midwest bomber in the spring of 2002. Uh, he was putting, he was blowing up mailboxes around uh, the Midwest and uh, people thought an ATF was involved and the postal service FBI got brought in. There was about a half a dozen, a couple people had their fingers damaged when they opened oh, the mailbox wow. And, and, but this is right after 9-11 and Al-Qaeda's, you know, are they now, you know, in the breadbasket of America, the U.S.? And 
I remember saying, yeah, something's not right here. Uh, who, who goes after mailboxes? I mean, it's kids. But mm. at some point, a letter came in to a newspaper, and it was a rambling thing. And I said, hey, I'm a firm believer. Let's publish any letter we can. You know, uh, I mean, make sure any evidentiary or names, or whatever, are taken out of any relevance. Mm-hmm. But uh, this guy had a little phrase on the bottom. So what you want to do as an investigator is you always want to leave one part of the letter out. And this guy had some cute little quote on the bottom part of the letter, which really in and of itself wouldn't have helped solve the case. But I said, hey, let's publish this without that. So we'll know if any copycats come in uh, that it won't be uh, that won't be the case. So uh, so sure enough, we did publish it. It was actually my recommendation. And within days, a guy from the University of Wisconsin, he's on the student newspaper he finally said, uh, uh, hey, I received a letter like this two weeks ago, and it's signed by one of our students. Here mm-hmm. it was him, and, um, and it was the identical letter just signed by somebody, a real name. They tracked him down, and he was the Midwest bomber who was eventually arrested in Daddy's car using Daddy's credit card on uh, spring break. Good so um, one example there, um, I, I just had another one flash through my head as I was talking about that, but uh, – but yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of well, the DC sniper case. They wrote, um, you know, they wrote letters. The Lindbergh mm-hmm. kidnapping uh, letter uh, letters. He put some kind of a little symbol, a dark circle, and with a line going through it of some sort. So these people are smart enough. Even even the true criminals are smart enough to know that there are you know bogus criminals or wannabe. Uh, you know, uh, naysayers to somehow come along and just mess up an investigation. So you'll know it's real when you see this symbol, when you see this, uh, this uh, social security number, when you see that, which of course wasn't a real social security number of anybody with the Unabomber, or you see these other features mixed in somehow. And that's what you always make sure, even if they don't request that you, you always leave something out of a singular nature out of any kind of a letter Mm. you're going to put onto a, uh, into the public uh, because you want to make sure you can separate the real ones that may come in from the fake ones. And that's uh, that's one way, of course, some criminals themselves know about that, but certainly in law enforcement, we know that too. And we would uh, do our best to keep that certain part secret that only they know about. Hard not to be sarcastic and say, well, it's good that they have pride in their work. Well, <laughs> it is. And that's, uh, you know, the ones that don't sometimes, they're the ones that are caught after one offense. I mean, there's a lot of potential serial killers out there, but because they're stupid, Thank make God. mistakes, they don't have pride in their work, they get caught. Same with serial bank robbers, serial rapists. Uh, it's the ones who sometimes are lucky, but they also have a decent IQ and a decent, uh, uh, you know, thought process that they can, you know, from beginning to end sort of map out what they're going to do. Nothing's left to chance or little's left to chance. They're the ones that become serial at whatever it is, whatever crime it is they're committing. And uh, and they have the pride, too, but depending how manifest it becomes, um, they may get away with their crimes for a while. Now, Jim, if you hadn't guessed, I could go on for about three <clears throat> more hours, but I'm sure you can't. So can people find out about your books and more about what you've done and bonus content on jamesrfitzgerald.com? Well, it's, I'm glad you mentioned my website. Yeah, www.jamesrfitzgerald.com. A lot of information there where I'm going, uh, speaking engagements. I'll be in Denmark in December. Uh, I actually have a fan base there. there. 
<laughs> well, uh, if you can tweet that out, then let them know. I'll be in the Southern, well, it's the University of Southern Denmark in Odense, the home of Hans Christian Andersen. Cool. Uh, on that Wednesday, I think it's the December 12th. And looking forward to that. Uh, so you can check out that environment there. Uh, be in New Zealand in April, but I'll hold that off for now. Um, but yeah, go on my website. You can check out how to get my books. They're all on Amazon, of course, some bookstores, but uh, Amazon has a good way to do it. I can send books out to people signed. Uh, we can work that out if they email me. That information's on my website. And um, um, it's all good stuff. And yeah, there are some bonus chapters from uh, each of my books uh, on my website under book one, book two, book three. So uh, uh, yeah, check them out if you want to know a little bit more about me and uh, probably a lot more about me with the three books that I wrote. And I try to keep them a little bit personal uh, about what it's like being you know, in law enforcement. And book two was written um, during the time of Florence, uh, Missouri, and everything that was going on there. And cops were being really uh, you know, raked over the coals and they're all evil and racist. And, mm. and I just wanted to kind of put a human face on law enforcement. No, we're not. And uh, same with when I went into the FBI. No, we're not. We're humans. We have families. We want to go to work in the morning and come home at night. And, um, and, uh, and so I try to put a little bit of a personal touch in my, uh, in my books, but it's also cops and robbers, like I said, and gunplay and car chases and, and all that stuff. And some really bad people, um, uh, Few of them, uh, even wearing badges that I wound up arresting over the years. Uh, and a collar. Uh, I actually was one of the first people to ever arrest a Roman Catholic priest. I caught him in the act of abusing two young boys. In Philadelphia. And, uh, Imagine that. In Philadelphia, my own <laughs> little town, and uh, right in the suburbs of my hometown. And yeah, and, and that opened the door to some things, but they were still only receiving slaps on the wrist back then. But that's all in book two. And it comes back again a little bit in uh, book three. So um, when I was a profiler, so um, yeah, it's been an interesting life. And like I said, I was kind of content in retirement, working a few uh, gigs with, uh, with with my company, and uh, and so I said, ah, you should write these stories down. You're a good writer, uh, Fitz. And, and I knew the miniseries was coming up, so the timing was just right. And uh, and uh, I'm I'm proud of the miniseries, proud of my books. And uh, if anyone's interested in uh, listening to this. Uh, be glad to send you a signed copy if you contact me, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Awesome. You also do some uh, training, I see, um, tied in with the universities. Hopefully you guys offer it online for those of us who are not in the area. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I'm adjunct uh, faculty at California University of Pennsylvania, and you go into their forensics uh, department, go online and look it up. And uh, I have a five-hour course uh, in forensic linguistics you can do online. Uh, you can oh, check good. that out. Uh once a year, I'm at Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York, right outside of New York City, and I do a one-week course in forensic linguistics. I co-teach it with my good friend, uh, Professor Rob Leonard, who, a little trivia question, he's one of the founding members of the band Sha Na Na. Now he is a forensic linguist. We're good friends, and my kids think he's so cool because he's a rock star. His <laughs> kids think I'm so cool. I'm an FBI profiler. And when we all get together, it's a, it's a fun, you know, they, his kids ignore him and want to talk to me. My kids ignore me, want to talk to him. So, uh, I guess it's all relative in life, but, uh, yeah, I, I take forensic linguistics very serious. I do go around the country, uh, online and I do, uh, I still do training in that area to law enforcement and others so interested. So, uh, yeah, so I'm a busy guy, even in retirement and, uh, I don't plan on slowing down anytime soon. Well, Hey, that's obvious. And Jim, Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time with us. 
You're welcome, welcome, Eric, and yeah, let's do this again sometime. Sounds great. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that really scares me. Yeah, I had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.